I got to just uh, tell you real quick something that's been on my mind all week. If you follow us on Instagram, you saw pictures of my son Grayson. He's seven months old, drinking a martini last night. He was drinking his bottle, but the other people with him were drinking martinis. And I've been thinking a lot about martinis because, of course, it's New Year's. And New Year's is like the official cocktail holiday in America, right? You got Fourth uh, of July, that's like the cheap beer holiday. And then you've got like, you know, uh, Oktoberfest, that's like the craft beer holiday. I think like Christmas, I was trying to think about it. Maybe it's like the schnapps holiday. I don't know uh, what it is. Uh, but then New Year's, definitely it's the cocktail holiday, right? And so if you know about martinis, you know uh, martini is kind of a classic drink, right? And I never really knew how to drink cocktails uh, growing up. I mean, you, it might sound like I, I don't have a drinking problem as far as I know. And uh, the thing about it is, I was learning as I went, like, how do I approach cocktails? So I'm going to tell you my favorite uh, cocktail story very quickly, just to kind of set the New Year's mood here, okay? I didn't hang out with anybody on New Year's. It was just me and Grayson at home. Mom had to work. I did make it to the ball drop. I had to take a quick nap between 8 and 11, okay? But I woke up. I got to see the ball drop. But uh, my favorite cocktail story, before I really knew how to drink cocktails, I was in New York City, 2003. I was visiting one of my uh, best friends, Brian. He was living in Manhattan. He was an investment banker. Uh, And investment bankers, if you don't know anything about them, literally uh, what it is is uh, the banks will just work them as hard as possible until they either die or they move away. This is what investment banking is about. But they get paid tons of money, and so they can afford these very expensive cocktails, things I couldn't afford myself. So uh, investment bankers tend to know a lot about cocktails. So I'm not a big drinker, but I'm visiting my buddy, and he's showing me the town, Manhattan. You know, i got to see the sights. They also know the best watering holes around, and I'm down in the meatpacking district. Anybody been to Manhattan? Anybody been to Manhattan? Have you been to the meatpacking district? Lots of good bars down there. Exciting place. you got to visit there uh, just to kind of see where the investment bankers hang out, okay? Now, like I said, I was more of a beer guy if I did participate in the adult beverage business, and so I didn't know a lot about cocktails, but I'm out with Brian, we're on the top floor of this swanky bar, meatpacking district, he orders a cocktail, I'll say, I'll have what he's having, you know, trying to look as cool as I can, you know, kind of put out the vibe, this is 2003, long time ago, uh, I was uh, still too worried about looking cool, right, I'll have what Brian's having, I don't even know what he ordered, some sort of a cocktail, and you know what they do when they bring you a cocktail, right? Well, this was one of those cocktails. It wasn't actually a martini, but this is one of those cocktails. And they always put the uh, little straws in the cocktail, right? A very helpful part of the cocktail. At least that's what I thought, because you would use the straw to drink the cocktail, because there's ice in the cocktail. You don't want to spill the ice all over yourself. So, you know, we're putting out the vibe, me and Brian, and uh, we both have our cocktails, and, you know, we're kind of holding them like this or whatever we do. And uh, all of a sudden... Brian turns and he sees me, and I'm drinking uh, my cocktail. I'm drinking out of the straws of my cocktail, and the terror that came over his face, the terror—it's it's like it's like Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, the terror that came over his face, and I've never seen a man in one motion move so quickly, grab these tiny little straws out of my hand and throws them to the ground, and he looks at me and says, "You'll never do this ever again." From that day on, I've been terrified of straws. You'll still see me, you know, at McDonald's, hold the straw. You know, don't even give it to me. (laughs) I'm just drinking everything, no straw these days, because that was such a profound moment in my life where I realized 
to be cool, you do, if you're a guy, I mean, girls, it's okay, you can drink out of the straws, but if you're a guy, throw the straw on the ground, right when you get it. Don't, don't even tempt yourself to use the more efficient straw. You got to drink it straight out of the glass. So I learned that that day. That's my favorite cocktail story. Uh, <laughs> it's my favorite New York story. <laughs> it was a good trip. Um, but I learned that day, there's a right way to do a good cocktail, and there's a wrong way. And so the more I thought about, uh, as you'll see, we'll go in this text, uh, there's something in the text that sort of uh, made me think about uh, this saying that you may have heard, right? What's the famous James Bond saying when he orders a cocktail? A martini. Shaken, not stirred. So I did some research on this, and I'm wondering, is this really the right way to make a martini? The answer is no. The answer is no. You do not want to shake a martini. You want to stir a martini. Did you know this? Because when you... <laughs> we're going to find out who has a drinking problem. When you shake a martini, what happens to the gin? Anybody know? Bruised, that's right. The mar okay, see me after the service. Uh, you bruise the gin. You bruise the alcohol if you shake it. Now, it's amazing how many people have written articles about that James Bond uh, is doing his martinis wrong, right? And so there's a couple of things. I just want to explain this to you. I feel like uh, this will just help you in life in general. Uh, the reason why we want to stir a martini and not shake a martini is because if you shake it, um, you're not getting the optimum temperature in which the alcohol thrives, Okay. And that's when they call it bruising the gin. The other thing that happens is when you shake it rather than stir it, you're actually diluting more of the ice into the martini, and then it's not the perfect combination, the perfect mix of gin. Does anybody know what you put in a, a martini besides gin? Vermouth. That's right. I'll talk to you too, Josh, after the service. <laughs> So you don't want to shake it too much, bruise the gin, dilute it, and when you dilute it, it actually will then, in the hand of the imbiber, raise the temperature more because it's got more water. And the third thing, the reason why you want to stir and not shake, is that um, chilling it too much, which is shaking it, actually ruins the oxidation process. More than you ever thought you'd learn at church about making a martini. So the result of a stirred, not shaken martini, where the ingredients are not bruised, but instead they're brought up in the perfect mix to the fullness, and the individual flavors can be tasted, the experience is tended to bring glory to the martini. Okay? And so you might ask, well, what does martinis, stirred, not shaken, have to do with Hebrews chapter 10? Hang in with me. I will answer that question, but first let's turn and read, starting in verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, pause, He's done in just 
one, two verses, he has summarized everything up until this point. That's why I wanted to show the video. He said, based on everything that I've said, now, look, look here, verse 22, let us, based on everything we've learned up to this point about who Jesus was, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior uh, to the old covenant, superior in sacrifice, all those things, let us, Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at it again. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the Word of God. And what I want to point out first is this important equation. Did you see at the beginning we have two we-haves? Verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. And then you heard those three, let us. Same words in the Greek, over and over. So we have this equation. We have, so let us. We have, so let us. We have, so let us. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that you'll find this equation. You see it in lots of Paul's writings. We have, so let us. Now, it's important generally to understand this flow in the economy of God. The way God works is always this way. It's always this way. Because we always have something given to us, and then because of our recognition of what we already have, we must then do something, right? Now you say, oh, that's simple. We have, so let us. Most of us get this backwards. We think, let us do this so that we can have what God promises. That's not how it works. We have something. He's already done it. God is the initiator. God makes the first step. God always gives to us, and then we respond to Him. We don't give to Him and hope He responds to us. And so this is like a really small nuance. You probably never noticed it, but you could look on the front of your bulletin at the Sedaris logo, and it's actually two arrows. And there's one arrow that's supposed to be more prominent. Now, I created this logo, and I am not trained in the art of graphic design, uh, but I'm trained in the art of theology. So the theology is good in our logo, even if you don't like the graphic design of our logo. We'd love help if you would like to use your gifts to improve our logo. But the idea is this. The way grace works is always God initiating, coming down to us, and we, in turn, respond to what He's already done. And if you don't understand that, that's the most simple explanation of grace and it's completely different than every other system of thought every other religion that God acts first and we respond to him so God acts first by creating and then we respond by following his commands we mess up God acts first 
by redeeming the people of Israel, taking them out of Egypt, and then we are supposed to respond. And we always screw this up, right? And then, of course, God comes down and he sends his son Jesus. And we respond to what he's already done. So we have. So let us. Now, what does he tell us to do? We have Jesus. He's already been given to us. We have his blood. We have his sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is sitting in the new tent, the tabernacle. We already have all of this. So what shall we do? What shall we do? Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay. What's he saying? When we understand the gospel of Jesus, when we understand that he has already come, that we already have him, what he's already done, who he already is, we should approach him in response with assurance, with a true heart. And anytime we don't approach him with a true heart, it's probably because we don't understand what we already have, what he's already done. He wants us to have full assurance, which is this idea of, you know, not closing your eyes and hoping, but knowing because of what God has proved. Knowing that our faith is sound. Verse 23. Let us, because of what we have, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For, we, uh, for He, that's Jesus, who promised is faithful. Now here's the great truth. We're not called to be people of faith, and we'll look more at this next week of some of the roll call or the hall of fame of faith. We're not called to sort of come up with this faith out of nothing. We're actually following the example of the most faithful person ever, which is Jesus Christ. Not because he had to, because he chose to come and obey God the Father and give up his life, always trusting in every command the Father gave him, he was the faithful one. And so we aren't doing anything that hasn't been done before by a human being. We do something that's been done by the God-man, Jesus. Verse 24. Now, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Here's where we're going to spend most of our time today. So this idea of consider, if you haven't uh, been with us before, uh, consider is a really important word, so anytime I see it in the text, I, I kind of geek out. Uh, but literally what uh, the Greek word here translated consider means is just to look at, to notice, to perceive closely and clearly. Okay? So it says, consider who? One another, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Look at each other, see each other, notice each other, perceive clearly what's going on in each other's life. That's what he's saying. So we talk about three things uh, here a lot. We say healthy individuals and communities consider in three directions. 
Consider God, consider Jesus, and we see that in Hebrews 3.1. Turn with me real quick to 3.1, just as a reminder. Hebrews 3.1 says this, Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, the high priest of our confession. So we have this, we see this sort of three-dimensional faith Consider Jesus, consider God, all he's done, what's true, what's real. We say, say, look up, see all that Jesus is. Uh, But then we also see right here in Hebrews, it says, consider your brothers and sisters in Christ, which is to say, look into your community, see your community, see the, the struggles, the hurts, those who are in need of love and good works. Uh, But we also have this idea, in this idea of good works is the idea of looking out and seeing others outside of our community and loving them in lots of ways, and we'll talk about that in a sec, using our hands to love them, using our words to love on them. So we have this idea, considering in three directions. It's it's a really important piece of what we want to be about as a community. We're trying to do that in every aspect of our life together as a church, in our fellowship groups, on Sundays we're trying to do that, individually we're trying to do that. Consider in three directions. So, having considered Jesus, now consider your brothers and sisters in Christ. And do what? Stir them up. Verse 24. Stir them up. Stir them up. Now the Greek word here for uh, translated stir up, it literally means to provoke. To irritate. Now, the key here is understanding stir up or provoking or irritating one another. It's not that we shake each other up. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to shake things up and make things cloudy. That's the other thing I didn't mention about martinis. If it's cloudy, it ain't a martini. You want to be able to see through your martini. That's how you know it's good. That's how I knew last night when I had a martini. First time in like 12 years. (laughs) It was a good martini. I could see right through it. When you shake something up, it makes things cloudy. It distracts you. You can't see clearly anymore. That's not what we're trying to do. It's not saying shake one another up. It's not saying cloud things up for your brothers and sisters. The world's already clouding things up for Christians already. They're already shaking up Christians everywhere. Our city does this. Enemies of the gospel do this. They're shaking us up. They're trying to get us confused, muddy the water, get conversation off topic. We shouldn't be doing this for one another. We're stirring, not shaking. Okay? We're stirring, not shaking. But we do want to agitate, to provoke, to irritate, and we'll see why that's so important in just a sec. If we don't get this right, if we don't learn how in healthy ways to stir one another another up, what's going to happen is we're going to miss out on the fullness of the gospel, on the right mix that we need to sort of thrive as a community, to thrive as individuals. Uh, We're going to miss out. We see this in other areas of our life, right? If you want to build up muscle, right, you need to agitate or provoke your muscles, Now, you don't want to shake them up to the point of they're so broken down, 
that they can't rebuild. You just want to agitate them enough so that they can rebuild, heal themselves, and grow up. In the same way, that's what we're trying to do is stir one another enough so that we grow, so that we're strengthened, so that we don't become stale or ineffective in the mission of God. So what does a healthy stir look like? You probably have somebody in your life that you really know how to stir them up. My sister Kim uh, was that person for me. I used to love to stir up my sister Kim. I just knew how to poke in the right way to sort of stir her up and to get her full emotion going. Sometimes I shook too hard and she would punch me. But, you know, I learned just kind of how to stir, just to kind of bring out the best parts of my sister. She was a woman of passion. She had... uh, she loved to, to, to compete, and so I would stir her up. I don't know who that is for you. You probably, Hopefully somebody's popping into your mind. But as you s- learn to stir each other up, as we learn to stir each other up, we want to stir each other up, sort of stir up our energy. So, some people in this church stir, stir up my energy. They just get me energized. They get me going. They stir me up. Some people stir me up philosophically. They get my mind working, thinking about things I don't normally think about, that are, but that are good for me. Some people stir me up analytically and logistically, and, and, and we should think about how we could do this better. Some people stir up the compassion of my heart. I mean, I could put names to each of those. There's people in this community that do that for me. They stir me up, and I thank God for you. Keep stirring me up. I need you to stir me up. We need to stir one another up. And we stir one another to what? Love and good works. Love and good works. Now what's this mean? Aren't love and good works the same thing? Actually, they're not. Love is a matter of the heart. Love is a matter of the heart. Good works are a matter of the hands. Okay? So what we're called to do here by the author of Hebrews is to stir one another up in the heart, in our affections, are our affections being stirred up in the right ways? And to use our hands then, are we stirred up to activity? And if we're doing this well, if we're stirring each other up in healthy ways, we, our affections will be changed, our affections will grow to Christ, we'll, we'll, our affections for the gospel and for his mission and for one another, our affections will be stirred up, and also that will lead to activity. You know, it's not enough just to have your heart stirred, but are we doing anything about it? Are we serving? Are our hands moving? Are our lips speaking the truth? Now, who are we to love? Um, I mentioned we're to love each other, right? We're to love one another. Those of us that call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to love each other. But we're also to love outsiders. Consider those outside. Neighbors, coworkers, family. Uh, But finally, we're called to love God. Is your heart, are your affections being stirred for God? Are they being stirred for outsiders? Are they being stirred for one another? Now, the author of Hebrews, he gives us a little bit more help in understanding how do we actually do this stirring? How do we actually do this stirring? So look with me here. In verse 25. So he's just said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then in 25, he tells us how to do it. And he gives us three ways to do that. One, 
by not neglecting to meet together. Does he say, don't neglect to meet together if you like going to church? No. He says, don't neglect to meet together. Now you say to me, uh, I go to church because this is what my parents tell me to do. I go to church because this is what my government tells me to do. There was a time in the world where the government told people to go to church. <laughs> Don't go to church because your pastor tells you to go to church. Gather together because the Word of God tells you to gather together. Gather together because God tells you to gather together. It's right here. This isn't something made up. This is something that God commands us to do. Gather together. And gathering together as a body, as a heavenly body, the body of Christ, as the church, when we do this, it helps us to stir each other up. It's hard to be stirred if you're not in the company of others like-minded. Okay, second way to stir one another. Encouraging one another. So, by not neglecting to meet together as the hab- is as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now, does it say, encourage one another if you have the gift of encouragement? I don't see it in the text. Well, you say, Pastor, here's the deal. I'm more of a truth person than a grace person. I mean, I'm really good at the truth. Uh, you know, that's my spiritual gift, is telling it how it is. This is my spiritual gift. Uh, you know, let's leave all that encouraging to the nice folks. I'm going to just focus right in here on the things I'm good at, and I'm really good at condemning. <laughs> that's what I'm going to just spend most of my time doing. I feel like this is the way I serve the body. Well, the problem is right here, it says everyone is to encourage one another. I don't care if your demeanor is one more of, uh, of the critical nature. You're told to encourage one another. It's a call to all Christians to encourage each other. Now, I'm not saying check truth at the door. I'm saying learn to take the truth and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ to walk more fully into the truth. That's what it says right here. The word for encourage literally means to come alongside. Is there anybody right now that you're coming alongside in our community and encouraging? If not, the word of God says do that. Here we go. The third thing. This one's a little bit harder to understand, but it's probably the most important. Okay, so he says, okay, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. What's he saying? What's he saying? What does he mean by the day? You read the, uh, we're going to read the rest of the chapter together and we'll see he'll actually split the day into two pieces. It's the same, same coin, two sides of the day. The first side is, uh, 
explained here in 26 to 31. So uh, read this with me. This is speaking of the day as the day of judgment, okay? Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, everything that we just saw in the video, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but in its place a fearful expectation of what? Of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. Listen to this. How much more, how much worse will the punishment be for those who trampled underfoot the Son of God? You see what he's saying here? He's saying, okay, if you, got, if you messed up on the law, God said there would be punishment. But if you trample underfoot, if you spit on the name and the face of Jesus, the Son of God, how much worse your judgment. And it says here, He has profaned the blood of the covenant, which He has sanctified, and He has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Here it is. Underline this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, what he's saying here is to stir one another up, is to remind one another that the day is coming. And you see this all over the Old Testament. The day is the day of judgment. There is judgment coming. There is a day when the judgment of God will come upon everyone. It's a real thing. And we know it's real because if you believe Jesus, Jesus speaks of it more than anyone. He reminds people again and again and again of this day of judgment that's coming. And every time He speaks of the day, it's not just to be a curmudgeon, It's because he assumes that when you realize the reality of the day, it will stir you up to do something. The problem is we don't talk about the day of judgment very often. And because of it, we're not stirred to mission. We're not stirred to action. We're not stirred to sharing the gospel. But when we think on, when we consider, when we read about, when we talk about, Friends, brothers, sisters, the day is coming. The day of judgment. People that you love will be judged. It should stir us. It should stir us into a loving heart. There's nothing more loving than withholding the truth of this day from somebody that you care about. Right? If it's a real day that's coming and you withhold it, there's nothing more loving. So it should stir us to love. And then it should stir us to good works. The good work of proclaiming the truth of the gospel, proclaiming the finished work of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and that this day doesn't have to be a day of judgment. Read verse 27 with me. This day doesn't have to be a day of fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. This doesn't have to be that for anyone. If they turn and see Jesus, repent and believe in His name, that we'd be stirred to love and share the truth. 
The fear that he talks about of the living God should stir us to action. So let's remind each other of the truth of this day. Of the truth that our participation with Jesus and his mission is the greatest act of love that we can do. Now here's the second part of this day. Verse 27 to 39. Uh, Excuse me. Verse 32 to 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed with reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, uh, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for you. And that's this, verse 37. For a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and uh, preserve their souls. Here's what he's saying. There is coming a day. Coming a day. And it's a day of judgment, but it's also a day of great celebration because what he's speaking about here is don't forget, there's a coming a day when Christ will return. Now we celebrate at Christmas the first advent of Christ. Advent meaning coming. Jesus has come once. But Jesus kept talking again and again and again. I will come a second time. There was some things I need to accomplish with my first coming. The first advent is filled uh, with fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament of the Messianic hope uh, that spoke of the sacrificial, the suffering servant. Jesus fulfilled that. He was beaten, he was crucified, and he rose again. That was the first advent, but there's a second advent, a second coming. That's what he's speaking of here. When Jesus is coming again. This is really great news for anyone who knows him. And we see it 45 times in the New Testament. This second coming is spoken of. The second advent. And so it's as sure a thing as anything you'll find in the New Testament. That if you believe in Jesus, if you believe the apostles who got inspired to write the New Testament, then you must believe in the second coming when Christ will return. That's going to be a glorious day. The Apostle Paul talks about it. And he says this, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, with a voice of the archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead of Christ will rise first, then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and will meet the Lord in the air, and so you will always be with the Lord. And then he says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There it is. The Apostle John writes about this in Revelation 1. He says, Behold, He, that's Jesus, is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. And then Jesus himself describes it this way. Immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, 
and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear the heaven in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that's Jesus, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Did you catch that in the last two? Mourning and wailing. Why? Because the coming of Christ is also the coming of the day of judgment. If you believe anything about the Bible, you have to believe in the second coming of Jesus. It's as sure as anything. And if you understand it properly, you realize that for one group of people, those who have put their trust in Jesus, it's a great day of celebration. It'll be the greatest celebration ever. As we see Him coming in the clouds. The Gospel of Luke says that angels appeared to the disciples after Jesus ascended, after the resurrection, and said He'll come back in the same way that He left. It'll be a great day. But for everyone who does not call upon the name of Jesus, it will be a day of wailing and mourning. Why? Not because it won't be beautiful and amazing and wonderful, but because it is. And because for the first time, they'll have to acknowledge that Jesus is who He said He was, that He did rise from the grave, that He is the Son of God, and that they are His enemy. Mourning and wailing. Celebration. This is going to be a crazy day. And so we're going to sing this song tonight for the first time. I love this song. I hope it becomes a song we sing a lot. It's a song called Wonder. And it says this. It says, it says wide-eyed and mystified. Wide-eyed and mystified. May we be just like a child staring at the beauty of the King. The song just like flushes over me. And it stirs me up. My affections are stirred. I think about this day, this day of wonder as I see more fully the beauty of the King. And I think about all those people who do not know the King and that when He returns, their cries will not be of celebration but of wailing and mourning. And it terrifies me. I want everyone on that day to wonder at the beauty of the King, to see the beauty and not weep tears of terror. We talked about on New Year's Eve, reverence. When we see the king, when we think about the king, if you've never visualized the king coming, now you don't want to go overboard. We don't know exactly what it'll look like, but we know it will be a wonderful day. But have you ever visualized it and thought about trembling with excitement when the king comes again? Oh, that that would be our church, that we would tremble with excitement, that we'd believe that day is real, that we'd encourage one another to go and love and do good works and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the day that Jesus is coming again, but this time he's not coming as a humble servant, he's coming as a conquering king, that we might be honest with people and love them and stir them up to the consideration of the gospel, to the consideration of Jesus Christ, to his redemptive grace. That is what we want to be about as a church. Stirring one another up. Stirring each other to love and good works. I'm so worried that we're slothful. John Bunyan has this great quote. I'm going to read it to you because I read it this week and it just terrified me a little bit. And he's talking about being slothful. If you don't know what a sloth is, uh, Google Zootopia. It's the new Disney movie. It's a great, it's a great commercial. Uh, they go these this rabbit and this fox. 
Police officers go to the DMV to get a record drawn, and it's just sloths working at the DMV. <laughs> and it's hilarious. Look it up. But slothfulness. He says this, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, you may have heard of him. He says this. What shall I say? Time runs, and will you be slothful? Much of our lives are past, and will you be slothful? Your souls are worth a thousand worlds, and will you be slothful? The day of death and judgment is at the door. Will you be slothful? The curse of God hangs over your heads, and will you be slothful? Also your neighbors are diligent for things that will perish, and will you be slothful for the things that will endure forever? Would you be willing to be damned for your slothfulness? Would you be willing that the angels of God should neglect to fetch your souls away from heaven, away to heaven, when you lie dying and the devil stands ready to scramble for you? Was Christ slothful in the work of your redemption? Are his ministers slothful in tendering unto you? Sluggard, art thou asleep still? Art thou resolved to sleep the sleep of death? Will neither tidings from heaven or hell awake thee? Will either the day of judgment or the day of glory not stir you up, wake you up to go and love people well, to go and do the work of the kingdom with your hands so here's my hope. 2016, we've got a whole year, 262 days left to glorify God, to love people well, to do the work with our hands of the kingdom. This is my hope, that we stir each other up in healthy ways. We don't shake each other. We stir each other. We come along. We encourage. We meet together. We invite people to speak into our lives and we speak truth with grace. That we speak how the gospel touches every part of our life. That sacrifice and redemption is a part of every part of our life. That we don't stray from asking challenging questions that might lead to life and thriving. That we wouldn't be slothful in our soul. So that we might recognize the fullness of grace. The fullness of the gospel. That our hearts would be stirred. That our affections would well up in us for Jesus when we think of him. When we stare Every morning I bring Grayson out and first thing we do, we go to the front window and there's a circular window and he looks out and his eyes light up as he sees the world. That's how we should be when we come to the table, when we see the cross, when we think of the gospel. Our eyes should light up at the beauty of the King. So let's stir each other up. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for each other and to live for the outside world who does not know Jesus and the day of judgment is coming. So I forgot this, but I had a, uh, a martini glass that I was planning to bring. So just picture it here, because I was really excited about it. And I just want to make a toast to 2016, okay? Just raise your imaginary martini glass in the air with me. Raise it up. Everybody, raise it up. Here's the toast, 2016. Let us remember that we have a great high priest and that we already have a Savior we already have forgiveness of sin. So may we not be shaken by our city's opinion of Jesus, 
but stirred by one another to love like Jesus loves with the perfect mix of grace and truth. Cheers, my friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chance to stir each other up as we come to worship your glorious gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross, that you lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, and you rose to a new life that we get to participate in should we call upon your name for salvation. I pray as we step into 2016 that we, uh, we would make just honest declarations with ourselves, with our spouses, with our friends, with our fellowship groups of saying this is going to be a year that we stir one another up, that we don't become slothful and lazy for the gospel of Jesus, but that we are full of love and activity for his glory and his kingdom come in Seattle as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.